This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. We're long past the time when we could assume even that dedicated believers in Jesus Christ understood why they should bother with church. The number who identify as Christians is far larger than the number who attend a weekly meeting. Even then, the bulk of the serving and giving in our churches tends to be done by only a few. So it's not as if COVID-19 suddenly convinced Christians they didn't need the church. Millions had already made that decision even before gathering involved online registration, social distancing, and masks. Last year, church membership fell to less than 50% for the first time in the United States since Gallup started recording the data 80 years ago. COVID-19 accelerated a long-trending separation between personal faith and organized religion. The shutdowns caught all of us by surprise in their sudden onset and ongoing duration. And it's certainly hard to get back in the habit once it's been broken for months. Now, even years, perhaps, without an end in sight. Even so, the body of Christ is essential to our faith. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. That's why Jonathan Lehman and I wrote Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential published by Crossway in partnership with Nine Marks and the Gospel Coalition. Lehman serves as editorial director of Nine Marks and joins me now on Gospelbound to discuss virtual churches, biblical authority after Mars Hill, and fellowship across difference, among other topics. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks, brother. That line, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. That's your line. That's a good line. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) I had a lot of fun writing this book. Uh, Most of the chapters are labeled between the two of us. But yeah, the intro and the conclusion leave a little bit to mystery. We're peering behind the curtain now. (laughs) That's his Uh, line, folks. (laughs) Jonathan, how does this book differ from the other dozen books that you've written on the church? Or maybe I'm underselling you there. Well, number one, this church, uh, this book is very much aimed at everybody in the pew, right? A lot of the other books I've written are for church leaders and so forth. Uh, not all of them, but 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 many of them. Uh, number two, we are very much responding to the moment. Hopefully, it, it has a ministry and a life beyond this moment. But it is written in the midst of this moment, coming out of a lot of political turmoil, as you said, coming out of the pandemics. And uh, I think we're responding to the fact that many people have long taken for the church for granted, and some people have even found it convenient not to attend church with, you know, the possibility of live stream and so forth. And so you and I are trying to say to them, hold on, this 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 is not a good idea. Uh, we were born into a family. The, the the new covenant is a a family affair. 
and you gotta have uh, time with your family. Jonathan, you and I, in our jobs, we have the privilege to be able to talk with a lot of church leaders, especially pastors, on a regular basis. How are how are you counseling leaders who are struggling to hold their churches together during this current upheaval? Well, number one, sympathy. Like, you know, my own church, Chevrolet Baptist, found ourselves first in, you know, removed because we, we met in a pub, public school and as a plant. And we were kicked out of that when the school just shut down. And so we met in a field for a while. And then we met in another church building for a while. And then a third church building or second church building besides our own. And uh, just now we're, we're back to the original public school gymnasium where we met. So, so the first thing is like, yeah, this has been tough in our church. Um, you, you know, you, you feel like you're on pause, you're on hold. It's like a, a long holiday away, you know, from, from your spouse and you're just, it's just been on the phone and you're like, oh, I miss you. And in many ways, I think our churches has felt like that. So, so I, I, I sympathize with any brother pastor or any member who, who feels this way. You know, the encouragement comes down to, uh, remembering that Christ has built his church, that we've endured, churches have endured pandemics and so forth before. Think of the plague, I mean, and so many other things. Early church had to deal with it. A lot of a lot of us, you could probably tell me more, Colin, a lot of us have been discovering how much authors in the past have written about pandemics and plagues and enduring those times. And uh, we will get through this. Yeah, I mean, for centuries, uh, the plague hit certainly at at massive times but did not go away and so just for century after century decade after decade church leaders were dealing with with that problem so you're right we're not dealing with something that's a surprise to god and even a surprise to many of our brothers and sisters in christ over the centuries well some, something something i've noticed actually is that church is going into the pandemic that already had a thick culture of membership and discipleship they did okay uh, churches that didn't have that in which uh, people approach their congregation a little bit more like consumers. Well, on the one hand, they found that, oh, my church is dissipating. On the other hand, they also found, no, the the live screen works just fine. You know, live stream, and I'm not dissing on it in all circumstances. There, There may be a time and a place for it, but it works just fine for consumers. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, but nonetheless, my, my larger point here is, is is churches that went into the pandemic with a thick culture of discipleship, a thick culture of membership, have discovered, hey, you know, we actually can endure this. People reach out. They understand their family members, their brothers and sisters in Christ. They can keep going. And so I've actually been encouraged to see, both in my own congregation and others, that durability through these recent times. I want to flip this around to talk about some of the members because – number of members of churches feel as though they've lost the churches that they loved before 2020. And that could be in for a number of different reasons, for the reasons that you talked about of bouncing around between buildings. It could be because it seems as though members have, the, the bonds of affection have frayed there. Yeah. Could even mean because they suspect that their leaders have veered in a certain political or theological direction, right or left in there. So how do you talk with with members who feel as though they've lost something treasured in the last couple of years? Well, like you said, it really, I'd love to hear your answer to that question. I mean, for my part, it really depends on why. Uh, the, the one I, I've, the, 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 the discouragement among members I've encountered the most tends to be around differences of opinion about 
A, political matters, or B, how we're responding to the pandemic. So I remember a long conversation with a brother and sister in Christ who, who are being required to wear masks and socially distance, and they felt like that was a violation of their conscience. Well, I'm going to have one kind of conversation with them that I'm going to have with the, uh, okay, another another lady in my church, who uh, that first couple actually is not my church, uh, friends in another church, a lady in my church who simply, due to high-risk categories, felt unable to attend. And in ways, at times, I wondered if we were even kind of beyond what was reasonable in my own, you know, fallible sense. Okay, so I'm going to have two very different kind of conversations with those people. Again, trying to exercise sympathy with both, but at the same time, um. Yeah, they're very different conversations, and both might warrant different challenges. I, I genuinely be curious, Colin, to hear your answer to that question. Well, I agree. It does. It does vary a lot depending on the person that you're talking with. There, the one thing that seems to matter most is whether or not what somebody is experiencing online accords with the reality of years of relationship in person in the congregation. I think what's been most concerning to me is how you'll have clear biblical commands, such as, for example, respect for elders being utterly overturned because somebody watched a video that convinced them of something that they had been betrayed by these elders who had known them and loved them over many years. And so, yeah, I have a certain conversation there, but I would primarily ask if the, if the online experience and all of us having been pushed even further online by the pandemic accords with the in-person relationship that has been enjoyed or experienced at least over the course of a long period of time. But that's been one of the most concerning things I've seen in my own congregation and seen across the board and heard from others as well. Uh, let's keep on that topic of just some of the difficulties that churches have faced in terms of responding to the last year. Um, and last year, Jonathan, you warned against churches that were gathering under certain conditions, or at least you disagreed with certain churches and how they were meeting. Now you've written a book with me saying that the gathered church is essential. Doesn't that just make you a big old hypocrite? <laughs> okay, let's go there. Yeah, we're going there. <laughs> uh, first of all, I would say you mischaracterized what I said. I don't purposely <laughs> or not, but I, what you said is not quite what I said. Well, either. go ahead. Just clear it up. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, I don't think I ever said churches shouldn't gather. What I said— Under certain I, conditions, it was not wise. I thought that's what you said. Well, well, what I said uh, it was uh, this was in response to a particular— pastor and his elders calling churches to gather and saying that, as I understood, as I read the article at the time, was a matter of faithfulness and courage. If you are going to be faithful and if you are going to follow Christ and love Christ more than Caesar, you will gather. And I think that might have been a great decision for that congregation. I have no quarrel with them. My my, the, Where I pushed back was just a way of saying, um, hey, other churches need to be free to make different decisions according to their contexts, according to what their elders have before them. So just kind of a, a, a note here for Christian freedom to leave churches to make other decisions or different decisions, each in accordance with its context, and not, as it were, 
uh, judge one another, not bind the consciences of other congregations as, hey, this is necessarily the way of faithfulness for all churches. And I think people misunderstood what I was saying as discouraging churches to gather. I try to make it very clear that wasn't what I was saying because I also said in that same piece, the very church that's calling us to gather can still gather. They can just do it outside. Right. Uh, it's not a particular form of gathering we're called to. So I never, uh, uh, yeah, made, made, made those claims. So I think I have uniformly said, hey, it's good for churches to gather. Churches must, and I would say this if, if you want to push me a little bit, I would say churches must ordinarily gather. I do think there are exceptions. I think there are emergencies. If, you, if your church building burns down, I wrote about this in the book One Assembly. If your church building burns down and you can't find another place to meet, well, you just can't gather. We, you know, Historically, these have been called providential hindrances. You're, you know, When you get sick, you're hindered by providence from attending church. When your church building burns down or when the government says you can't meet here right now because we're trying to protect your lives, that's a, a providential hindrance. And at that moment, you can decide we're going to defy the government or we're not going to defy the government. And all I'm saying is in those exceptional, extraordinary moments, not ordinary moments, um, let each church and each church's elders make its own decisions. It does seem to have been a confusing point for a number of people because one of the things I wrote about in the guest essay I did for the New York Times was on the importance of gathering, but that also came in the context of my church's decision last summer to meet in a parking deck, distanced, and with masks, and how much, even though I had a lot of skepticism about how that was going to work out, I'm glad that we did that rather than simply having stayed in virtual church the entire time there. So, yeah, it seems there's a lot of confusion about Okay, if you're saying gathering, and by the way, this criticism has come to us from both sides. If you're saying gathering, that must mean indoors, with no distancing, with masks, and with a certain defiance toward the government. Yeah, That's just not anything that we have said or demanded. Um, And you're right, when you're making the argument for Christian freedom, it seems to be you're prone to being misunderstood right now. I think, there, I think there, well, let me just say two things. Sure. Number one, I, th- I think we have, as Christians, evangelical Christians, an underdeveloped view of, of Christian freedom. I, I think when somebody invokes Christian freedom, people necessarily are construed that to mean, oh, this isn't really important. This is a relative matter. Well, well no, not necessarily. I, I might have a strong conviction here. It's just that I recognize the limitations of, of um, what I'm able to bind on you, what I'm not able to bind on you according to Scripture. Right. The second thing I would say is I just I want to state this again very clearly, so there's there's no confusion. I believe it's possible to simultaneously say that one, Christians must gather as churches, and two, occasions exist when they are providentially hindered from doing so. So I think, Colin, we can hold those two sentences together at the same time. So Christians must gather, one, and two, occasions exist when which we're providentially hindered from doing so. Now, if somebody wants to quarrel. With either of those things, that's fine. We can have that conversation. But I think you and I both, from the beginning until now, believe both of those and have said both of those things. Yes. Yes, we have. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Ray Ortland's new book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Pornography may seem inescapable. 
but God can free us from its destructive power. In this book, Ortland writes six personal letters, as from a father to his son, giving hope to men who have been misled by porn into devaluing themselves and others. The death of porn inspires men to come together in new ways to fight the injustice of porn and build a world of nobility for every man and woman for the sake of future generations. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off plus a free copy of the ebook. In Rediscover Church, Jonathan, you argue that church authority is biblical, necessary, and even for our good. Uh, haven't you been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast? <laughs> yes, I have. What's your question? That's the question. <laughs> That's the question. That question. How can how can you say? Well, the answer is yes. I, I, how can I you say church that. authority is good in a post Mars Hill world? Okay, thank you. Uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, do, do parents abuse their children? Yes. Do we get rid of parental authority? No. Is, do, you know, do policemen abuse their their jobs? Yes. Do we get rid of policemen? Well, no. Right. So, so, so the the question is, what is biblical, healthy church authority? And not only that, you can have a right system of church governments, polity, structure, and just really immature people trying to lead it. You know, people who are not qualified as elders, um, with their hands on the steering wheel. Right. You know, a car is not a bad thing. I just want to make sure somebody who's qualified to drive it is driving it. So. That's that's my short answer. I'm, I can expand on that if you want. What, what I think, just in I terms assume you of, agree with all of that. Sure, I I think that in general, I th- this podcast, the uh, rise and fall I'm of not, Mars. I'm not scratching where you itch, though. Obviously, no, no, you are. Um, I think it's just worth reaffirming explicitly for especially the leaders who are listening to this podcast that that podcast has been such a phenomenon certainly in in my church it has been that i think you're going to see a certain response to authority become expected and i think one thing that's often confusing is that when my church exercise of exercises authority, for example, through discipline, almost always it's for the same reason. Mm-hmm. It's a husband who is hurting his wife in some way or another. Mm-hmm. It's almost always how it's exercised in our case. And so I would think, well, isn't church authority in that case biblical necessary and even for our good to be able to protect the vulnerable women of your congregation? Well said. That, I mean, that, that's that's what we're trying to do here. So, it does seem to be a, a major mistake to say that the problem is authority, as opposed to people who are sinfully wielding that supposed authority in bad and ungodly and certainly unbiblical ways. So, I don't know that I trust right now that people are particularly good at being able to discern. Well, they're in between. reaction mode. And I understand that. Exactly. But but another way of saying what you're saying, just a little more philosophically, is the response to bad authority is always going to be good authority. Yeah. We're taking it out of your hands. By the authority invested us, we're going to take that authority out of your hands. Right? And I, I think that's almost always the case. But, but, but what people rightly are instinctively responding to, Colin, is that uh, authority is, as I wrote in an article, a good and dangerous gift. Absolutely. Authority in creation and redemption are used to, think of the word authority, author, 
life. Mm. God in creation used his authority to author creation, and he told Adam and Eve to do the same thing, right? And Christ in his, in redemption, uses his authority not to, not to, to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So authority and creation and redemption are beautiful, glorious, life-giving things. The coach coaching, the mother mothering, you know, the pastor pastoring, raising up, equipping, strengthening. Authority in the fall, however, is dangerous, exploitative, oppressive, destructive. And when we have our eyes fixed on just one or the other, the good parts in creation and redemption or the other, the dangerous parts in the fall, we're going to have an imbalanced view. And so finally, we need to think through these things a little more carefully and ask ourselves, what can we learn from situations like Mars Hill? Yeah. Well, you can keep that going through, right? Authority in creation, authority in fall, authority ultimately redeemed yeah. um, in Christ. And as we eagerly anticipate a time when his authority is fully and finally known mm-hmm. to all, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Um, this is a quick answer I'm looking for, Jonathan. Would you say the need to physically assemble as a church is explicitly commanded, implicitly commended, or just good practical wisdom? A, Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Okay, that's the short answer I was looking for. That, I was so kind of you to tell me a short answer because you know I can be long-winded. <laughs> no, that's fine. We're just working on a— just, Lead me like a dog, Colin. Working against the clock here. <laughs> um, this one, I'm also not looking for a super long answer because we've touched on this, and you and I have talked about it in various forums, but I wanted to ask it this particular way. A virtual church makes it possible for many more people to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ— then what can be the problem with it? Because it's portraying an individualized, disembodied, overly spiritualized view of Christianity. The Christianity that Jesus gave to us is both corporate slash familial and physical because we're physical creatures. And he means for us to encourage and uh, be together. I mean, just, you know, Two words, virtual honeymoon. (laughs) All right? (laughs) Nobody wants that. I was talking with somebody. Now, church isn't honeymoon, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think what we've been saying all along about virtual church is that it only makes sense as the continuation of premises that were already flawed. Right. That church is essentially just a platform for disseminating information and experiences in a broad way. If you start with that premise, then virtual church is simply a continuation. Of oh, that. yeah. It makes perfect sense. But if I understand Christianity to be the sort of thing where uh, I, I, I'd like to hide sins in the dark a little bit, but then I step into the assembly of people and they ask me questions and then I see – I'm not just singing songs of praises. I hear my brothers and sisters singing the saying songs of praises and I look at them in the room and then and the pastor leads us in prayer. Or maybe he asks me to lead in prayer and then I hear other people praying. I'm physically surrounded 
right? I'm physically surrounded by people singing the same songs, offering the same confessions, singing the same praises, saying amen when the when the preacher reminds us of Christ's certain victory amidst all the challenges we're feeling in the week. Okay, that emboldens and heartens, heartens my faith. Sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so the full three-dimensional embodied experience of gathering with the saints is what Jesus set up. And a church is an ecclesia. It's an assembly, right? The very word tells us to assemble. Like, why would we be think we're so wise to know how to do better? It just doesn't make sense. This question, Jonathan, I don't you don't you don't you don't have to make this personal about your church because I'm I'm sure the saints of Chevrolet Baptist are, are listening um, to you on this podcast. But um, is there something you hope your church, or you could say churches in general? never do again after the pandemic. In other words, maybe not every aspect of opting out during this unusual era is is bad. Okay, I'm not sure I understand your question. Okay, so I think if you so, think, stuff they did before that I hope they've learned that they don't do now? Yes, exactly. So what what we've seen here with virtual church and with this pandemic is more or less everybody has opted out. One of the ways Andy Crouch put it early on in the pandemic is that everybody's an entrepreneur. Everything's a startup now. Mm-hmm. So that means more or less this is an unprecedented opportunity for people to be able to rethink what they do and why they do different things. So there may be some things that you're looking out there saying – this would be a great time to opt out of something that you saw churches doing just out of maybe momentum or tradition or something. How about you answer that question? <laughs> Give me time to think. I had a pastor tell me that they, that um, they stopped doing altar calls because they didn't want people mingling up front. Okay. And so he decided, I'm just never going to bring it back. I see. So I'm just going to hope nobody notices I don't do altar calls anymore. And you can just see across the board in our society, people deciding, I'm not never going to do that again. And just hope no one notices or complains that we're not doing that again. (laughs) Yeah, that's, 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 I mean, insofar as you can get rid of unhelpful, unhealthy, distracting programs along the way, that's a great thing to do. Honestly, brother, I can't think of anything uh, that, that, that is going that I would say uniformly we should, we should get rid of like that. I, I, I guess I would move in the opposite direction. I think my concern is more that people will discover virtual <clears throat> church live stream services are so easy and convenient yeah. and they won't realize what they're missing because as you were saying a few moments ago, their, their whole view of church was already careening in that tra- trajectory it, 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 you know, it was, it's a, it's a furthering, I think you said, of the, the way they've already construed the faith. And so they're going to get to virtual church and, and uh, become even weaker because it will affect them, but they might not realize it. And that's my concern more in that direction. Um, and, and for those of us who stop and think, hopefully, though, however, it's an opportunity to ask the question, okay, wh- why do I gather? So I guess if, if if a takeaway lesson is that you're being forced to think about the assembly and the nature of the assembly and the good of the assembly and its purpose in your life more deliberately and carefully than you ever did before, before you just took it for granted, I would say that's a good thing. In fact, I, I think that'd be one of the main, main um, challenges I would offer to any listener, which is, have you stopped to consider to think about 
the good of the assembly, the purpose of the assembly, why Jesus would name the church the assembly. Like, why? Have you, have you sat for five minutes and thought about that? That'd be a good thing to do. Yeah. Have a conversation with a friend. Look at the Bible. Um, I've had a, an opportunity to th- reflect on a number of different things during this pandemic, as I know you have, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. And one of the things that we emphasize in Rediscover Church is the beauty of a church that fellowships across difference, across our differences on politics and masks and racial unrest and things like that. But it struck me at some point, Jonathan, that I don't think that's a premise we can assume. I think a lot of people assume that there's something wrong with your church if there's disagreement on those points. And I think that's on both ends of the spectrum. So, I guess I would say, what's your shortest, clearest argument for why that should be something a church actually strives for as opposed to striving to stamp out? Yeah, it's easy to understand why non-Christians will gather around points of commonality, right? Whether it's a shared interest in a sport or a shared ethnicity or a shared nationality, you don't need the Holy Spirit of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant of his blood to unite us across those kinds of things. But when we're united around nothing else except the gospel, well, that shows supernatural power. So you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector walking down the road. Let's just picture them there for a second. Maybe they're 20, you know, they're shuffling along from one city to the next with Jesus. Maybe they're 20 feet behind. They're kind of talking about Rome. I'm picturing Matthew and Simon kind of, you know, arguing a little bit over their differences on Rome. Nonetheless, what are they both doing? They're both following Jesus. They're both demonstrating that they have a greater love, a greater affection, a a, a new worship, which is the man that they're following, right? And I think that displays the glory of Jesus in a special way, rather than if it was just a zealot and a zealot, or a tax collector and a tax collector following after Jesus. So we do have a wonderful opportunity to show the power of the gospel. Now, let's be honest, Colin. I'm I'm kind of speaking theoretically here. This is hard. (laughs) The last year, the last year and a half has exposed that like never before, how difficult this can be, because this isn't, this, this isn't difference between Cheerios and Wheaties. You know, these are matters of justice. These are potentially matters of repentance right? Some of these political things we're talking about. And so I get it. It's hard. I don't mean to downplay the, the, their significance or the difficulty. Nonetheless, the gospel's got to be greater. Hmm. Love that. The gospel's got to be greater. It is greater, um, which is the opportunity here. And that's the last question I had here was, what's your hope? What's the hope that our churches could actually emerge from this period stronger? What would that look like? Well, you know, you know, you and I are having this conversation in the middle of 2021, and the image that came to me earlier today, in fact, talking with somebody else, is in many ways, I feel like we're still in it. I feel like oh, yeah. we're, 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 uh, we're a little prop plane in this big storm. Lightning is, is all around us. Crack, 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 right? And you're at, you know, you're, you know, there you and I are flying along and I'm saying, Hey, we need to fly at 5,000 feet. And you're saying, no, we need to drop it down to 2000 feet to get through this storm. And who knows, you know, I, I don't know which one of us is right. And, and we're all still navigating this. The hope that we have, of course, we just have to go back to those theological truths that, that, that Jesus will build his church, even if you and I make the wrong judgment about whether or not 2,000 feet or 5,000 feet is the right altitude for our little plane here. Um, 
And the one who endures to the end will be saved, right, says Jesus. And, and the one who conquers, he says in Revelation 3, he will rule with Christ on his throne. And I was actually, in fact, I was reading that this morning uh, to the church in Laodicea and uh, thinking, okay, Lord, help me to hold on, help me to conquer so that I may rule with you in the end. And all I know how to do that is to do, about, do that by faith, holding on to him, even if some brothers and sisters in the faith profoundly disagree with me on this or that issue and pull away from me. Or maybe I, I feel the need to pull away from them for a little while. I, I, I can't see the end of all of this. I, I don't know what's going to emerge on the other side of the storm other than Jesus wins, the church will be standing, and I'm going to be doing all I can between now and then to hold on to him by faith. And I would, I would exhort my brothers and sisters in the gospel, whether they think I'm a, you know, too far this way or too far that way, to do the same. I'd love you to answer that question, brother. I really would, even if we're out of time. <laughs> I, I want to um, know what your hope is. I always see a crisis like this as an opportunity for renewal, for getting back to basic principles. If we can get back to the gospel, if we can get back to that which unites us, then we can move forward together. But if we get convinced that the gospel is not big enough to be able to keep us together, that we need to find unity in something else, I, I don't see where the power of God comes in there. Um, now, the gospel may lead us to certain conclusions. Christ may lead us to certain conclusions based on that that we think are very important and we think the rest of the church needs to hear. But unless it's coming out of that supernatural power of the of the, de of the death and resurrection and the ongoing ascension or and, uh, intercession of Christ, then I, I, don't, I don't know what other means we have except basically screaming at each other on social media. And that doesn't seem to be doing the trick. So, it's my short answer there. Um, my final three here, Jonathan Lehman from Nine Marks, talking about Rediscover Church, why the body of Christ is essential. I just, uh, normally in the final three, Jonathan, I asked, where do you find calm in the storm? But you beat me to the punch, and you actually gave me the storm, I gave you the storm. illustration. So, I'm not going to ask you that one. So, I'm going to jump straight to, well, I mean, this one probably, where do you find good news today? I mean, certainly we've got the gospel we're celebrating here and talking about, but where do you look for good news today? What kind of answer are you looking for in that? No, just is there somewhere you, something you read, someone you talk to, some some practice that you have? I mean, there's just so much that's discouraging. Where do you, yeah, where yeah, do you yeah, find yeah. good news? Number one, I get off Twitter, honestly. Uh, number yeah. number number two, wife and kids. But let me let me give you a third a third answer. One of the brothers who I just continue to grow in respect for, very, very often, when you draw close to people, you see their faults and you realize, okay, you may not be the hero I, I thought you were. I've been able to draw close, pretty close to Mark Dever over the years, I think we can say. I see the man's flaws and foibles, but I just continue to respect him and be amazed by his ability to keep his eyes fixed on the hope set before us on his not getting dragged into uh, the, the, the quarrels and controversies, and yet continuing to give the benefit of the doubt and to see the best uh, in people through all of this, because he has his eyes fixed on a very big God. So honestly, I find that spending time with Mark Dever is just is one way to, to remain encouraged. Yeah. That's me looking for a very concrete answer to that's your question. Perfect. Other that's perfect. Exactly, concrete. exactly what I was asking 
about it can be very disillusioning of all the frustrations that we experience with broken friendships and pastors who fail us. So when we see the the risen Christ indwelling somebody who, I mean, a friend that we've known for a long time, that's a great encouragement to us. Last question, mm-hmm. Jonathan, what's the last great book you've read? The last great book I've read... Um... I just started a new book today. I don't know if that doesn't later. qualify. No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> like one that you just, it's just on your mind. You want to talk to people about, and it could, you know, it could go back a while. Are you pulling up your Goodreads well, here? Well, 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 okay. Uh, fun book. I yeah, just finished. Fine. Was a man at arms by Stephen Pressfield, ah, historical okay. fiction. Okay. But the book I just want to talk to people about, and this is going to be utterly predictable because you've been saying the same thing, is Carl Truman's book, <laughs> yeah. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Yeah. Like, like everybody needs to read that book, or at least a new edition coming out next spring, yeah. hopefully a little simpler. Uh, like I, I think, I think junior high and high school kids especially need to be reading that book to understand the the self and how we want to define ourselves. And and um, so, if you're in junior high or high school, or you have you have kids of that age, let me encourage you to get Carl Truman's upcoming book. Uh, was it what's what's the new one called? I can't Those remember. Things? But <laughs> look for strange, strange new world. Strange new world. Okay, that sounds I think right. It's called Strange New yeah, World. That sounds right. Uh, and, and read that with your high schooler. I love that one. Love that suggestion. Jonathan Lehman's been my guest on Gospel Bound, editorial director of Nine Marks, co-author with yours truly of Rediscover Church: Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold.